The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, there's a new book about the 60s, about the heroism and the disasters of the movements of that decade. We'll speak with the authors, the brother and sister team, David Talbot and Margaret Talbot. David is the founder of Salon.com, and Margaret writes for The New Yorker. But first, we want to talk about critical race theory. We're a little late on this. In the past three and a half months, the Fox News Channel has talked about critical race theory nearly 1,300 times. It's being banned from public schools and colleges in something like 13 or 15 Republican states. But what is critical race theory? Started 30 years ago. So why is this happening now? For comment and analysis, we turn to Kimberly Crenshaw. She teaches law at Columbia in UCLA. She's probably the most prominent figure associated with critical race theory today. At least that's what The New Yorker says. In fact, she coined the term 30 years ago. She also created the concept intersectionality. She's got a really good podcast called Intersectionality Matters. And she co-founded the African American Policy Forum, now one of the country's leading social justice think tanks. In 2015, it created the hashtag SayHerName. Everybody wants to talk to her these days, NPR, Time Magazine, MSNBC, The Guardian. So it's a special pleasure to say, Kim Crenshaw, welcome to the program. John, it's so great to be on the program. And I think your listeners might not know that the first time critical race theory really had a national public hearing was in an article you wrote in 1989 called Law Professors Fight the Power. So we're coming full circle right now. <laughs> yes, that was in The Nation magazine. I was writing about an article of yours in the Harvard Law Review. Wasn't that the first thing you ever published? Race reform and retrenchment. Yeah, that yeah. is so, so salient now because the, the basic point of the article was to say that wherever there is race reform, there's inevitably retrenchment. And sometimes the retrenchment can be more powerful than the reform itself. And there are some ways that what we are experiencing right now is exactly that. Well, it's rare that a professor's scholarly work gets banned in more than a dozen states. I guess that's a measure of the power and significance of your writing, but I'm not sure I should say congratulations. I'm not sure if I would receive it either. <laughs> I, mean, there's, I mean, of course, the whole point of, of writing ideas is for them to spread, but it's an entirely different thing when the idea that you are writing about has been gentrified effectively by a, a, an opposing agenda that fills it with meaning that becomes a source of hysteria yeah. uh, on, on, the, on the part of, of the right. So it truly is a moment where yeah, there's bad news and good news. The good news is critical race theory has been mentioned, as you said, thousands of times. The bad news is it's been on Fox TV and, you know, the, the various right wing news media. So it, it's really a moment of, of mixed blessings, to yeah. say the least. 
Well, I want to spend just a couple of minutes on how screwed up their understanding is before we talk about the big question, which of course is why is this happening now? Mm -hmm. I want to start with the warriors against CRT, let's call it, who think the basic is a basic idea is I'm quoting here, by your race alone, you will be judged, close quote. They don't seem to know about intersectionality. Well, not only do they not know about it, John, they don't want to know it, you know, so I won't go through the names, but let's just be clear that those who have been behind this movement are really clear that they don't care about what the ideas are. They, they, they said they don't, they don't give a, a, a good, you know, exp expletive about what this is really about. What they recognize is that this is a great wedge issue. They can take the name, they can fill it with meaning, they can create this hysteria, and that can be a winning idea or a winning issue when they really don't have any other uh, agendas to push. And I think what we're seeing is precisely that. So, you know, uh, 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 directly in terms of uh, the claim that they make about us. Obviously, these folks have not read intersectionality. Obviously, they don't get that one of the main points of critical race theory is to say that to understand racism, racial power, our history only as a matter of prejudice or bias, as uh, a matter of individuals who are morally bankrupt, is not to understand the history of race in America. So the whole point of critical race theory was to repudiate the idea that we can and talk about racism only as a moral failing or as a quality of individuals rather than as a structured reality that's embedded in institutions. That's what critical race theory was about from the very beginning. <laughs> Sounds pretty so, good to me. Irony is at the least to say that they are trying to beat us with precisely the thing that we were trying to dismantle. Well, the Oklahoma bill banning what they call critical race theory does have a pretty specific idea. They uh, prohibit teaching the concept that a person, quote, by virtue of his or her race, bears responsibility for actions committed in the past by other members of the same race, close quote. What, what actions in the past committed by white people do you think they don't want students to learn about in Oklahoma? I think this is the best example uh, at what's about that tells listeners what's at stake and why it's surfacing now. So we just last month as as a nation turned our attention to the centennial of the Tulsa uh, massacre in the same month that this 100 year effort to finally draw attention to the fact that thousands of, of black homes and businesses uh, were destroyed, hundreds of African-Americans uh, of means were killed. And the truth about that had been literally and figuratively buried in Tulsa. We finally were at a moment where the implications of it and the fact that it happened 
um, were ripe for public discussion and education. Then this bill comes along, the governor signs it, who by the way, was a member of the committee that was designed to actually interrogate the meaning of that history. This bill comes along that basically chills efforts to talk about that history. And I think the, the language that you quoted tells us what's really at stake. The idea that anyone now is responsible for something in the past is designed to interrupt the conversation about what does repair look like? Um, what does compensation for the survivors uh, of that uh, race riot uh, look like? What do we have to think and talk about if we then start talking about all of the race riots that happened, all of the ways that mobs of people destroyed Black property and Black futures and undermined our ability to be um, like every other American and, and, and make our way through this country with, without racism interrupting us at every stage. So precisely where this where we are in a moment of racial reckoning, precisely when we are broadening our concepts of what racism has been and what its contemporary consequences are. That is the moment when these laws come about that effectively say that was then, this is now, and anything that contests that cannot be raised in our school systems. So this is about a contemporary agenda, controlling narratives of the past in order to limit what has been unfolding in this country for the past year. And it's just kind of a footnote to that history discussion. I, I know that people on the right also connect critical race theory to the 1619 project, completely different undertaking, but that's a history curriculum launched by the New York Times that emphasizes the centrality of structural racism in America since the very beginning. The latest on that front is, uh, the refusal to give tenure to the historian who led the 1619 uh, project, Nicole Hannah-Jones, at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, uh, where she was up for tenure to the Knight Chair in Race and Investigative Journalism. Remind us what happened to Hannah Nicole Jones in the last week or two. Well, it, it, it's, it is a bone-chilling story because uh, the Board of Trustees under uh, pressure from right-wing donors, from others who have money and means, uh, effectively refused the appointment, uh, denying her the tenured appointment that is usually a routine affirmation of the vetting process of, of the school itself. And let uh, me add that had been already voted by her colleagues and by the administrators exactly. in charge of that position. I mean, it's very, it's, it, you know, most, most listeners might not know that it is highly unusual for the board of trustees to overturn a decision that's gone, gone through every uh, university process. So the fact that they were able to do it um, uh, is a, a reflection of how uh, powerful um, this this effort to suppress these interrogations of the past actually are. It's a testament to how organized and mobilized uh, the sentiment is, and uh, how little they fear from exposure. I mean, this was going to be the highest profile effort to uh, actively punish people for exploring in an academic way 
alternative narratives about the, the, the nature uh, of our founding, uh, the, the very effort to say, what if we thought about the formative moments of this country, not in terms of 1776, but in terms of 1619, when the, the first African people arrived on these shores who stolen labor created the capital uh, that allowed for the massive expansion of these colonies into what is currently thought of as the United States. It is a legitimate way of thinking about history. You don't have to agree with every part of it, but to think that it is acceptable, justifiable, defensible, to deny someone tenure because of a, a project for which she has won the Pulitzer Prize <laughs> is basically telling us all of the traditional things that are said about meritocracy, all the traditional things that are said about freedom uh, of academic pursuits, all of the, the people who go to the mat about freedom of speech, usually when it's on the other side of the aisle, it basically is telling us at the end of the day, the substance of this project is so objectionable to a cohort of our public that they are willing to go to the mat and deny this person the tenure job for which the university vetted and, and approved her. This is telling us that we have to be aware that everyone who's not Nicole Hannah-Jones is also uh, potentially at risk. This is an assault on the academy. It's an assault on the freedom of, of ideas that no one, whether you know critical race theory 1619 at all, uh, should be satisfied with. This, this is a shot across the bow. Kimberly Cranshaw. Kim, thanks for your work on critical race theory and on intersectionality and for the hashtag say her name. And thanks for talking with us today. Well, thanks, John. And, and let me just say, while we're talking about hashtags, don't forget truth be told. That is the hashtag that we're trying to use to fight back. So I encourage your listeners to look us up at aapf.org and find out about how this repression is coming to a town near you. There's a new book about movements of the 60s and their fights for equality for people of color, women, and working people. The authors are a brother and sister team, David and Margaret Talbot. Their book is called By the Light of Burning Dreams, The Second American Revolution. David Talbot is the founder of the pioneering online magazine Salon. He's written many books, including the bestseller The Devil's Chessboard. Alan Dulles, The CIA, and The Rise of America's Secret Government. He's also been a senior editor of Mother Jones and a columnist at the San Francisco Chronicle. We reached him today in San Francisco. Hi, David. Hey, John. And Margaret Talbot has been a staff writer at The New Yorker since 2004, where she's written about lots of things. The current issue features her fascinating report on the campaign inside the Catholic Church to permit women to become priests. Before The New Yorker, Margaret was an editor at the late lamented Lingua Franca, where she edited me. She's won many awards for her writing. She's the author of the book, The Entertainer, Movies, Magic, and My Father's 20th Century. We reach Margaret today at home in Washington, DC. Hi, Margaret. Hi, John. Well, you guys focus on leaders of different 60s movements, some well-known like Tom Hayden and Jane Fonda and John and Yoko and 
Bobby Seale, who of course was portrayed recently in the award-winning Aaron Sorkin movie on the trial of the Chicago 7. I'd like to focus here on some of the less well-known. You have a fascinating chapter on the Jane Collective, founded in Chicago by Heather Booth, who remains one of today's most important progressive leaders. You say the work of the Jane Collective was one of the most remarkable feats of grassroots activism and sheer chutzpah in the history of American feminism. Please explain the Jane Collective. Yeah, well, the Jane Collective was uh, just a really daring, audacious um, effort all around. I mean, it was these women who, in the era before abortion was legal, before Roe v. Wade, starting in the mid-60s, began providing abortions, first as a kind of underground referral service to to, to doctors who would uh, do these abortions, um, you know, secretly, and uh, later actually training themselves, the women training themselves to perform the abortions. And um, these are not for the most part women who had medical backgrounds at that time, but they worked with these, these uh, male uh, providers who they learned from. They ended up providing uh, 10, about 10,000 abortions. They had an incredible safety record and they did a lot of feminist consciousness raising with the women who they, who they saw. It had a very kind of mutual aid aspect to it. Some of the women who went through it also came back and had abortions themselves. And it was part of the Chicago Women's Liberation Union, which was an amazing, vibrant and vital organization that had a lot of um, a lot going on, had a rock and roll band and a graphics collective <laughs> and all kinds of stuff. But um, but yeah, they really they, they were really an example of sort of stepping up and kind of doing for themselves, but also doing it with a with a uh, with a feminist ideology. And just to go back, um, it was it was founded, you mentioned Heather Booth, it was actually founded by Heather Booth, um, kind of out of her dorm room at the University of Chicago when a friend's sister needed an abortion and she um, uh, had come back from the uh, Freedom Summer in 1964, was uh, a little bit familiar with um, breaking the law uh, in a righteous <laughs> cause and was willing to do this and she got it going. Your chapter opens with the story of the bust, Chicago police detectives knocking on the door and eventually arresting seven of the people called the Janes. Tell us a little about the bust, the trial, the aftermath. You know, the Chicago police had seemingly kind of looked the other way a little bit on their operations because some actually uh, wives and daughters of, of, of cops actually did come to them for their services at times. And so there was a little bit of looking the other way. But eventually they did run afoul of the law. They were arrested. Um, they got a very uh, a tough Chicago female criminal defense lawyer to represent them. And um, she dragged the case out long enough that it actually did not uh, come to trial before Roe v. Wade. And so when Roe v. Wade in 1973, January 1973, um, became the law of the land, they actually, uh, the case, the, the charges were dropped. And I loved your chapter on the American Indian movement at Wounded Knee, which focuses on Dennis Banks, Madonna Thunderhawk, and Russell Means. Let's talk about what happened on the Pine Ridge Reservation in 1973. Yeah, and I want to give a shout out also to Leonard Crowdog, who died recently, uh, the spiritual leader of the Wounded Knee Occupation. This was an amazing, John, resistance to federal sovereignty, to federal law. It was an uprising of the American Indian Movement in 1973 against the Nixon administration, but protesting the long, long history of broken treaties and deception and betrayal. 
and also the corruption of that particular uh, reservation leadership under a man named Dick Wilson, who'd been elected under very sketchy circumstances and ran a really brutal administration with a squad of kind of paramilitary thugs who proudly called themselves goons and went around shooting up the homes and roughing up people who opposed his administration. So AIM responded to the tribes people, uh, Lakota tribes people of that reservation. They were kind of shamed into taking action, the male leaders of AIM, Dennis Banks and Russell Means, by the women who said, look, if you don't take a stand here, we will. And so they occupied the sacred site where almost 100 years before there had been a massacre of over 200, closer to 300 Lakota tribes people by the regiment that had once been under the command of uh, General Custer. They were drunkenly and wantonly massacred by this regiment who later got medals for their own heroism, kind of a, a, still a stain on American history. And so they occupied the sacred site. They said they could at night still hear the, the moans and the cries of the dead. And so they were inspired to take a stand for 71 days. They withheld the full might of the uh, federal forces, vigilantes, over a half million rounds of ammunition fired at them. These are men, women, and children occupying the site. Uh, amazingly, only two Native Americans were killed during this onslaught. But Crow Dog, Chief Crow Dog just said, uh, in, I was reading his obituary in the New York Times, and he said this was the greatest deed undertaken by the Native people in the 20th century, because it showed the, the amazing solidarity, I think, of the tribes people. And frankly, it, one of the things Margaret and I uh, go into a, a lot in this book is the kind of uh, bonds that were developed between movement groups. So before we started Zooming here, I know, John, you and I were talking about Bill Zimmerman, amazing guy, a uh, white guy, uh, grew up in Chicago, working class Jewish family. But he was kind of like the zealot of the left. He was everywhere. And among his many achievements was flying a small squadron of planes and risking his own life over Wounded Knee when the people there were starving. They'd been so cut off from the outside world by the military, uh, militarized police forces that they desperately needed food. And he led a small squadron of planes over Wounded Knee and dropped food to uh, the people below, risking, you know, uh, uh, death. And at one point, uh, one of the uh, the bags of food shears off part of his plane, uh, his tail, <laughs> and he barely was able to land it, the plane, safely. Uh, anyway, these were the kind of, I think, uh, heroic acts that we found so inspiring in the book. As Margaret uh, said, Heather Booth and, and the risks that she and others took in Chicago were similar. We need to be inspired by this and also learn from the mistakes that were made. And, and, and they, of course, made many mistakes as well, these people. Yeah, one of the keys to your approach is not just the stories of heroism and the high points, but as you say, to talk about the mistakes, the problems, and frankly, the disasters around some 60s movement leaders. I appreciate especially uh, your chapter on the Panthers and what happened to Huey Newton. Of course, a lot of us who were around at the time took part in a lot of free Huey rally rallies. Huey did not end up one of our heroes. Let's talk about what happened to Huey Newton and, and what was the white witch? 
Huey descended, uh, sadly, into criminality and gangsterism. <clears throat> There's no putting uh, a spin, a better spin on it than that. He was one of the founders of the Black Panther Party, very charismatic guy. I tell the story, as told to me by Bobby Seale, the co-founder of the party, when they first confront a cop on the streets of Oakland, where routinely racist cops, violent cops, would shake down, harass, beat, and arrest uh, Black citizens for no other reason than uh, they could do it. And, uh, you know, that kind of uh, violence finally was resisted by the Black Panther Party. Uh, Bobby told the story to me, and I retell it in our book in a very dramatic way, where they first legally confront this cop. Uh, No one was killed, no gunfire, but they confront him with guns. And that was the amazing heroism, I think, and the daring courage of the Black Panther Party to do that. Now, Bobby wanted to pivot after that. He thought that would capture the imagination, the attention of the Black community in Oakland and nationally, and it did. And then he wanted to pivot to electoral politics and become basically a Democratic Party machine in Oakland. He himself ran for mayor in 1973 of Oakland. But Huey took a different path, sadly. Partly it was Huey's personality. He was always a hothead. Bobby talks about that with me. But he also, I think, life in prison and isolation really did a number on him. And I don't think to this day we understand enough about how these long, hard stretches of prison did psychologically affect many leaders of the movement. And Huey Newton was one of them. You know, Peter Coyote, who was a friend of Huey Newton, told me that he was a very different man, Huey, when he came out of prison. He did get into the White Witch cocaine. He got into drinking, uh, heavily drinking cognac. He began to brutalize other people, including Bobby Seale at one point. Uh, he ran a gang, basically, a, a drug gang in Oakland before he himself was shot on the streets of West Oakland by a younger drug dealer. A very sad kind of a decomposition of a guy who'd once been very heroic and charismatic. And another one of the problematic figures who you face, quite frankly, in your book is Cesar Chavez. What was the martyr complex? That chapter was written by our, uh, my husband and our collaborator, Arthur Allen, who's not with us. I mean, he's with us in the world, but he's not with us on the phone call today. But um, anyway, we, we really wanted to focus on these turning points where, where uh, various leaders of the movements um, decided to do something pretty bold and pretty imaginative strategically and, and personally and so on. And, you know, of course, Chavez led these incredible hunger strikes. I mean, where he went on hunger strikes himself, where he really brought himself near near death. And they were they were quite successful at drawing attention to the plight of the farm workers and to the boycott, which was in turn quite successful at bringing people uh, across the country into the farm worker struggle and into support of the farm worker struggle. But I think partly because of um, those sacrifices he made and the kind of sacrifice he made of his own person, of his own body, uh, that contributed to, I think, a feeling of, of martyrdom and isolation and um, kind of extraordinary um, separation at times from some of the people that he had come up with uh, and worked with and alienation um, from some of the from some of his um, fellow activists. So uh, I think in the end, he also um, 
made some unfortunate decisions, surrounded himself by um, people affiliated with, you know, some cult groups, you know, to do kind of uh, camaraderie building exercises that were that were kind of punitive and strange. And all of these people, and we talk about this in the book too, all of them underwent quite a bit of, you know, surveillance, harassment, persecution by, you know, the FBI, by, by COINTELPRO, Hoover's program. And so that contributed also, of course, to many of them legitimate feelings of paranoia or, or, of, or of fear or caution, um, but also those, the kind of feelings that can get out of hand and, and, and isolate people. Well, I do want to um, uh, talk a little bit about the personal side of, of all of this. David, I know you were uh, like a high school activist in the 60s. So this is a book in which you are writing about your own life. How did you deal with that? Well, in some ways, I, I was coming full circle. It's true, John. I wanted to make sense of this history, frankly, for my own uh, sake and the, those who are part of my generation, but even more so for the younger people. Uh, I have children, two sons in their 20s. Uh, Margaret has two children. Uh, and they're obviously uh, caught up in their own times and the turbulence of today. And we think it's important for these people, for the younger generation, to learn from our mistakes and also to be inspired by the achievements of the 60s and not get so grim and, and, and down that they see you, you can't make history because you, we did make history. I was a foot soldier in those movements. I knew I went to, like you, free Huey rallies. Uh, I went inside prisons inside Soledad as a Santa Cruz student uh, to teach prisoners and to raise their consciousness. And they raised ours, of course. Uh, I was involved in anti-war activities, got beat up, got arrested. And these to me were essential sort of paths that, that my generation, the best of our generation took. There was a great deal of heroism, of sacrifice uh, in my generation. I'm proud of that. And mistakes, yes, were made. Uh, and so this book, in some ways, was the culmination of everything that I've uh, been part of politically and written about politically over the last 40 years. And Margaret, you were just a little kid in the 60s. It was your older uh, brothers and, and, and sister, I guess, who were part of things. How did that affect your writing of this book? Yeah, well, I was born in 1961. So yeah, I'm 10 years younger than David. And um, I kind of grew up just, you know, going to visit them in their Santa Cruz, uh, you know, left wing socialist feminist lesbian collective and going to dances and, and demonstrations and um, as, as a kid, you know, and and um, I, I loved it, and um, I was treated with so much warmth and and uh, and and love by all those lefty hippies, and um, kind of raised by the by the village of them. In addition to our our own family, and I have always felt that I so benefited from coming of age. Age then, you know, after second wave feminism. And, you know, now um, as the mother of a gay daughter, I feel um, so grateful for all of the social and cultural changes that the gay rights movement, uh, LGBTQ uh, movement has made. So, um, but I did also feel as a kid, just a lot of longing to, a lot of regret that I wasn't older and couldn't actually be, you know, out there in the thick of it. So this gave me a great chance to kind of re-experience it, uh, you know, vicariously as a, as a, popular historian and it was and 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 somebody who had yeah lived in that um penumbra of it so. hey john i should add one quick thing uh 
I originally was doing this book on my own and I uh, suffered a stroke in uh, the fall of 2017. And I knew I needed someone to help me uh, write it to complete uh, the book. And I couldn't think of a better person than my kid sister, Margaret, <laughs> to do this. And so I, uh, I asked her uh, if she would step in and Art, her, Arthur Allen, her husband, to help me out. And we became a team, a family team. And in some ways, it was like the collective enterprise <laughs> of our past. And I it, had a great time working with Margaret and with Art. It was just as smooth and a wonderful uh, collaboration as you could have asked for. So uh, I want to give Margaret a shout out. She didn't need to do it, but she did. She jumped in and she did a terrific job. Your feelings mutual, bra. It was great. <laughs> I know it was really a, it was a really joyful experience. And uh, I, I was I was thrilled we got to do it. Well, David, it's great to see you uh, healthy today. The book is By the Light of Burning Dreams, The Triumphs and Tragedies of the Second American Revolution. David Talbot and Margaret Talbot, thank you for talking with us today. Thank, thank you. Thanks, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. The theme music for our podcast is by Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. For more principled progressive journalism from The Nation, you can subscribe to our print and digital magazine online at thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. With this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners, you can get digital access to all of our articles for less than $1.50 a month. You can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. Go to thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. You can find out more about the Start Making Sense podcast at thenation.com. And you can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. Oh yeah, 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 y